Okay, welcome everyone. Thanks for coming. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Rabbi Levine, who's our rabbi at the uh, local Orthodox shul Amechad in uh, Willow Glen. He has been the rabbi there since 2007 and has been responsible for uh, growing our congregation to the strong uh, congregation it is today. And uh, this is, the, the, I believe, the fourth time that he spoke to our, to our group. Um, so as you all know from his previous talks, all four of his grandparents are Holocaust survivors, or were Holocaust survivors. And um, I think the first time he talked to us, I, you know, I, I, I told you he had seven children. I think the next time I told you it was up to eight. Well, guess what? <laughs> Nine. <laughs> so, um, you know, what better uh, revenge on Hitler can you have uh, than that, right? Um, but some, some other interesting uh, facts about Rabbi Levine. Um, he attended the famed Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem. And uh, he, he also uh, attended law school at... Uh, prestigious um, Ivy League school, uh, Penn, and um, he's been very um, inspirational uh, to, to me, and in fact, uh, today's uh, topic also is very meaningful uh, to me because I, um, when I first joined Amakad, it was about five years ago when my dad, blessed memory, passed away. And I wanted to uh, say Kaddish for him uh, on a daily basis. So I went to Tama Akkad. And uh, they provided me that, that uh, opportunity as well as the opportunity to, uh, to, to, to grow uh, much stronger in my uh, Yiddishkeit um, and spiritually. So um, with that, Rabbi Levine. Thank you, Hudo. Thank you, Ross. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I, I say this uh, unequivocally, that really I feel uh, honored to be here today. Um, this group, which in general uh, of survivors or children of survivors, um, is especially meaningful to me. As mentioned, my, all four of my grandparents uh, are, are Holocaust survivors and people who um, keep the memory of the Holocaust, keep the memory of those who passed away in the Holocaust. And those who survived alive, I, I view as uh, uh, extraordinarily uh, noble and worthy. And I'm, I'm, I'm humbled and honored to be here today. Uh, as mentioned, this is the fourth time that I've had the opportunity to speak here. And, you know, although my hat is black, I think I wear different hats. And sometimes uh, when I've spoken here in the past, I've had different angles. My first time I spoke here was being a, a, a grandchild of four survivors, a third generation survivor. So I really, I think I spoke primarily as a grandchild of four uh, Polish Holocaust survivors. Um, the next time I spoke was about the Nuremberg trials and the idea of revenge and law. So I really, I'm a, I have a law background. I, I, I spoke as a historian. I have a history background. And the third time I spoke uh, was really spiritual greatness in the Holocaust. And then I use my rabbinic background. Uh, today, I think it's going to be a little bit of a combination of 
my rabbinic. That's about uh, the title of this lecture is Yizkor Yard Sites Baby Naming and Genealogy, Honoring and Memorializing Our Loved Ones. So that's certainly going to be rabbinic. But also, of course, as a grandchild of survivors. Uh, so in line with today's lecture, uh, I'm going to dedicate in this lecture in honor of my great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, great-uncles, great-aunts, even uncle and aunt, who were murdered in the Holocaust. It should be in the Lilith Neshama for them. The, there's a work called Sefer HaChinuch. Sefer HaChinuch was a book which details and delineates the rationale from all the mitzvahs. It, it was written in the 13th century in Spain. And in that book, Sefer HaChinuch, the author writes the following thing, that in the, the Yibom, in the Levite marriage, that the idea, if somebody passes away without children, that it, there's an idea that a sibling should marry the wife. Says, for today, you know that the people who here speak Yiddish a little bit? Some of it, it's all. For Holocaust, you know, so Zak the Sefer HaChinuch, explain the Sefer HaChinuch, that it's the, the, the reason is that we should have a sort of physical remembrance in the physical world. What does the verse, the Pasuk say? Shloyimach Shmo Mi Yisrael. That his name should not be erased from Israel. Why should this marriage take place? That this name, this person, should not be forgotten. The Ksav Sofer, Rabbi Avram Shmuel Binyamin Sofer, who was arguably the greatest sage in the mid-19th century in Central Europe. He was the, the Rav in Rosh Hashiva of Bratislava in Pressburg. The Ksav Sofer says, you know why we have tombstones, matzevas? It's that the names of the, of the, the should not be forgotten from this world. And when you go to a cemetery, it could have just had lots of places, but that name, that person, that individual should not be forgotten. Uh, uh, Eli Wiesel, in his acceptance of his Nobel Peace Prize in 1986, so he had a lecture entitled Hope, Despair, and Memory. It's a remarkable, you can download it, it's on the Nobel uh, sites, under Nobel Lectures. And in this, in this Nobel Peace Prize, which Eli Wiesel one, he started, of course, with his book Nights about his own experiences in the Holocaust, and he went on to be an advocate for the Russian Jews, who at that time in 1986 were still behind the Iron Curtain. <coughs> and in his lecture, in his speech, he says the following thing. Remembering is a noble and necessary act. The call of memory, the call to memory, reaches us from the very dawn of history. No commandments figures so frequently, so insistently in the Bible. It is incumbent upon us to remember the good we have received and the evil we have su- suffered. New Year's Day, which is called Rosh Hashanah, is also called Yom Hazikaron, the day of memory. On that day, the universal judgment man appeals to God to remember our salvation depends on us. If God wishes to remember our suffering, all will be well. Thus, the rejection of memory becomes a divine curse, one that would doom us to past disasters, 
past words. Later on in his, in his speech, he said that, wrote the, said the following thing. The great historian Simon Dubinov served as our guide and inspiration. Until the moment of his death, he said over and over again to his companions in the Riga ghetto, Yidin, schreibt und unverschreibt. Jews write it all down. His words were heeded. Overnight, countless victims of the Holocaust became chroniclers and historians in the ghettos and even in the death camps. Uh, even members of its Sunder Commandos, those inmates forced to burn their fellow inmates' cor- corpses before being burned in turn, left behind extraordinary documents. To testify became an obsession. They left us poems and letters, diaries and fragments of novels, some known throughout the world, others still unpublished. And he talks about this topic at length. It's actually remarkable that, therefore, there's really no Hebrew word. There's no word for history. (laughs) There's no biblical word for history. The modern-day word for history in Israel is historia. It's not a biblical word. the, The key word of the Bible, of Tanakh, is memory. It's zikaron. The word zachar, or one of the forms, appears no fewer than 169 times in the Hebrew Bible. Yidin, Jews, were to be a people of memory. And there is a profound difference between history and memory. History is his story. There's Chinese history, Russian history, uh, Babylonian history, African history, Native American history. It's their story. Sometimes it happens to, to other people. Memory is my story. It's something that happens to me. It's part of who I am. History is information. Like you can study the information of cultures, of things that occurred, but it doesn't nearly necessarily uh, impact you. It, doesn't, it could expand our horizons, actually. For those who are interested, I have 40 hours of Jewish history online. Uh, I'm happy to give it to anybody. That is our history, but it, it's, it's memory, it's the past and present. You know, I, in that history series, I said the following thing, that if we don't know our own history, our history is our memory, we don't have our own history, we're like an, a person who wakes up in the morning and don't, don't, we don't know who we are. Do you imagine tomorrow morning waking up and not knowing any of our family members? not knowing where we went to school, where we live. How would we live? We wouldn't understand who we are. And when we're talking about uh, memory, what we're really talking about is our history. It's who we are. That we are products of this history. It impacts us. I imagine we can't understand any of us in this room unless we knew about the Holocaust. You would never understand who we are. Actually, you should have a refuah, shlema, complete recovery, yossi reina, who, you know, I, I, every time I would see him, like, if you didn't know the Holocaust, you would never understand him. You couldn't understand such a lively person. And we would see him lively again unless you understood what the Holocaust uh, is. But there's something else I think that today in particular I want to touch upon. Because even if we have memory, you know, and we remember the Holocaust, remember the events, and this crowd really honestly does not need to know, uh, we, we know the details. 
But if we forget the people, the individuals, that is a tremendous loss. Because if the legacy of the Holocaust is remembered, the six million people, but we forget the individuals, what a, what a tragic loss for them and for us. I, you know, I remember I went at the age of, I just turned 18 with, with, with my yeshiva uh, to Poland. And again, I grew up with um, my, you know, my mother's parents. My mother was a product of her second marriage. Of her parents, both were married before the Holocaust. My grandfather saw his wife and two kids shot in front of his eyes. Uh, my, mo- my grandmother, I mean, I, really, I grew up with the stories. And, but when I remember being there, I think, and to this day, I think the most profound, when, I, when, I, when, I, when it hit me, when I was in Auschwitz, and I was just looking at the shoes, and I was just look, like, looking, who in the world wore these shoes? Like, they were people. And you just look in a room and you see shoes, and you see other things in the other room, and you think to yourself, like, everyone had an owner. Who were the owners? Mitch Album. Anyone know who Mitch Album is? Right? Mitch, Mitch Album is from Detroit. He's, he's about, his books have been published about 40 million times. 40 million copies of his books have been uh, published. He is a playwright, a journalist, author, screenwriter, radio and television broadcaster. He had Tuesdays with Maury. The five people you meet in heaven for one more day, have a little faith. The timekeeper, the first call, phone call from heaven. Uh, the magic strings of Franco, Frankie Pesto. Uh, and the next piece of person you meet in heaven. He has a very often Jewish motifs. And in one of his books called Have a Little Faith. Anyone read that book, Have a Little Faith? So, Have a Little Faith, it, 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 the, the story begins with an 82-year-old rabbi who calls Reb. Uh, uh, who was asked to deliver a, a eulogy. And in, that, in the book, he says the following thing. It's a, n- a remarkable thing. What do fear, people fear the most about death? I asked Reb. Fear? He thought for a moment. Well, for one thing, what happens next? Where do we go? Is what we imagine? That's big. Yes, but there's something else. What else do pe- people fear about death? Being forgotten he whispered. There's a cemetery not far from my house with graves that date back to the 19th century. I have never seen anyone come there to lay a flower. Most people just wander through, read the engravings and say, wow, look how old. The cemetery came to mind in the Reb's office. After he quoted a poem, both beautiful and heartbreaking, written by Thomas Hardy. It told of a man among tombstones, conversing with the dead below. The recently buried souls lamented the older souls that had already slid from memory. They count as quite forgot. They are men who have existed not. Theirs is a loss of fitful breath. It is the second death. The second death. The unvisited in nursing homes... The homeless found in frozen alleys, who mourned their passing? Who marked their time on earth? Once, on a trip to Russia, there I recalled, we found an old Orthodox synagogue. Inside, there was an elderly man standing alone, saying the mourner's Kaddish. Being polite, we asked him, 
for who he was saying it for. He looked up and he answered, I am saying it for myself. Because nobody else would. And today I really want to talk about preventing a second death. That for, for the martyrs, for the people who were murdered, for, for our relatives and for our loved ones, how, what we can do, that their memory, their legacy, their deeds should be remembered in this world. Hashem is always Iskar. Hashem has all of the names of all of those people who died, Al-Kiddush Hashem, who died only because they were Jews, who were murdered and tortured and abused. But what could we do here for those individuals? So I want to start with Yizkor. Now, Yizkor, does everyone know what Yizkor is? Everyone heard of Yizkor, right? So Yizkor is what we do in the synagogue. Uh, it's to remember the deceased. Uh, it's an act, it's not just it's just not just catharsis. It's an actual remember the disease. Now, there's an important idea here, a fundamental idea, and that is the following thing. It is based on a firm Jewish belief that our acts, our deeds, could bring merit to the deceased, especially relatives, in particularly, in particular children. Um, they have the ability to bring their relatives to a higher uh, place. Actually, Yizkor, the one of the great men of thought in the 20th century, his name was Rabbi Chaim Freelander, so he, he brings down that Yizkor is to mention. We want to mention their names in front of Hashem, that Hashem should remember them for the good. That Hashem should remember all the good they did for us, and in that, in that, and with that, they should be rewarded in the eternal world, in Olam Haba. But it's not just that they should be remembered; it's that we want to remember them so they can inspire us. Um, there, there was many years ago. I, I, I remember him really the year before he passed away. There was a famous Magid. A Magid was a person who gave spiritual inspiration for hundreds of years in Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Hungary. Uh, there was something called a Magid. And he would go around to the synagogues and talk about ethics, about fear of God, about improving oneself, about how to keep the Torah. And w- one of the famous people from Jerusalem, his name is Rabbi Shadron, he went in the 1960s to London to collect for a Jewish organization. And when he was there... Somebody stopped him and told him, you should know that my father was from the greatest Magids in Budapest, in Hungary, before the Holocaust. He told the following story, that when he was nine years old, when he was nine years old, he remembers going with his father to a shiva house. His father made him come with him. And he went to a shiva house of an individual who was a, a schneider, a tailor, and it was a simple man who was, who was observant, and his son was completely, totally non-observant. Did nothing Jewish, no connection to anything. And he went to this house, and he remembers his father sitting there with this individual, the son who was alive, this tailor. And his name was Moshe, and he was also a tailor. He worked for his father. He's called Moshe the Schneider. And he just talked to him. And the next day, his father brought him back again. And the second time his father was in the Shiva house, he said to his Moshe, the Schneider, 
it would be great if you would come to the synagogue to say Kaddish for your father. Now this is a, a young man, or it wasn't so young, but a man who did nothing. We call him today completely unaffiliated. <laughs> Not, no connection to anything. And surprisingly, this Moshe the Schneider became, not only to come to synagogue, but became completely observant. So much so that this boy, whose name was Laszlo, or Ezra was his Jewish name, this Laszlo, this Ezra said that in the synagogue, if you talked, he was the one who said, shh. Right? He was a person who everyone had to watch out. He became very religious. And it was right before Eichmann came into, Eichmann came into to, to Hungary to, to Rahman al-Latzan, attack the Jewish community there. And it, that was when he was nine. It was three years later when he was 12 years old in 1944. He said it was the last time he ever saw his parents. He was taken away from his parents at the age of 12 years old. He never saw them again. And he was in the camps. And he grew up a religious boy. His father was a Magid. But he had, you know, in the camps, there's no Shabbos, there's no kosher, there's nothing, there's nothing Jewish. And he was an orphan. And when the war ended, he was still an orphan. And, you know, he grew up in a house that was Sabbath observant. And he was so far off at that moment, but he still wanted to keep Shabbos after the war. And as they got better, he became friends. His bunkmates, his roommates in this, in, this, in this rehabilitation, I'm not sure if it was a DP camp or they were still in Hungary, uh, said one Friday night, let's go to town. They take a trolley, let's go to town and see the nightlife. Let's live again. Let's, let's go out and live. And this Laszlo, this Ezra, didn't want to do it because he, he was still, even though he, had, he, he wanted to try to keep Shabbos again. And his friend Thomas, well-meaning, didn't know anything about it, said to him, Tom, let's go, you, you, you have to get out, you got to live again. And he pushed him to go out Friday night. And he was so uncertain, this is, what he, this is what he wanted to do, he's thinking about his father and his parents. And as they're going to walk to the trolley, his friend Thomas offers him a cigarette. And he, he didn't know what to say, Thomas lights it for him, he takes a cigarette, he takes a puff. And he gets on the trolley to go to the town, and the whole time he's thinking, should I be doing this? But in the moment, he's, you know, he's just like, I'll let it go. I've got to live again. I just, you know what I just went through? I went through H-E-L-L. And he's going on the trolley. At one half, part of him saying, let's just enjoy life for a moment. And they're saying, I hope nothing happens. I hope no one sees me. And as he's on the trolley, he can't believe it. As he's on the trolley going down to the town from the hill, he sees... Moshe the Schneider. This person, who several years early at the age of nine, who remembers his father taking him, this Moshe the Schneider, he sees him walking on Friday. He, could, he thinks to himself, if Moshe the Schneider would see me on the trolley with a cigarette, he got off, he got off the trolley, he walked back, and since that day, over 20 years later, he keeps the Shabbos. And then he told the Magad the following thing. He says, I never saw the Moshe the Snyder again. And now when I look back at it, I'm not sure did I actually see it. But he was Yizkor. He remembered at the age of nine going with his father and impacting. When you remember somebody, it affects us. It's not just the person that we bring merit. We bring merit to us. Actually, the idea of Yizkor is to pray for the dead, to remember, to pray for the dead. That Hanukkah is coming one of the first mentions of, of praying for the dead is in the book of Maccabees. <coughs> Judah the Maccabee, 
Yehuda the Maccabee and his friends in the book of Maccabees, they prayed for the, 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 the murder, the, those who died fighting the Greeks. It's actually in several Midrashim. Um, but Yizkor, the idea what we do today, was instituted right after the First Crusade when Jews were massacred in mines, spires, and worms. That after the First Crusade, they, they instituted uh, Yizkor. And originally, Yizkor was, was only done on Yom Kippur. Why on Yom Kippur? A remarkable thing. On Yom Kippur, what is, does anyone know what we call Yom HaKippurim? Yom Kippur is in plural. You know why that is? Because when we atone on Yom Kippur, we don't just fix ourselves, we fix our ancestors as well. Think about it. Let's say a person grew up in a home, for whatever reason, they screamed a lot. They screamed a lot. And now a person on Yom Kippur makes amends and doesn't scream. What happens? You're fixing the past. Right? You know, my mother-in-law is a professor of social work at NYU at New York University. And she will tell you, she's a, her, her, her specialty is abuse, both domestic abuse, social, sexual, all kinds of terrible abuse, is that if a child is abused, abused, they are not a little bit more likely, they are much, much more likely to abuse their own children. Because that is what they're used to. That's what they're accustomed to. So God forbid a, chi- a child of abuse, they'll be much more likely to abuse their own children. So what happens when this child fixes themselves? They're fixing their past as well. So Yom Kippur was the ideal day to have Yizkor, to remember and to bring merit uh, to our past. Uh, there, we, not only did, we, uh, did they pray, but originally, and even today, when you do it, when they, the, it was based off a verse in Parshas Re'eh in Deuteronomy, that's, that you should not close your fist to others. So as a merit on Yizkor, it's not that synagogues like to raise money, there's a Yizkor appeal, right? A pledge. Why do they do that? Because part of the merit for the deceased is to give charity, staka, in their merit. In fact, the liturgy, the nusach of Yizkor actually says that I'm going to pledge. I'm not just going to pray for them. I'm actually going to give money uh, in, their, uh, uh, in their memory. Who do we say uh, Yizkor for? We say Yizkor, you can say for, certainly for parents, grandparents, children, family, and friends. Um, uh, you know, one, one question I've had is, let's say, uh, like my grandparents, their first spouses were murdered. Um, could you say it for your first spouse? Right? Or, if, you know, if someone's spouse just dies, could you say it? What if they're remarried? But since Yizkor is quiet, nobody hears you, it's appropriate to say Yizkor for a first spouse uh, 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 as well. One of the customs of Yizkor is like candles. Actually, you know, in a house of mourning, one of the things that you do is you have a seven-day candle. Actually, if you sign a memorial, God forbid, we should have no, no, no one passed away. One of the things they'll give you, or okil, they will give you a seven-day candle. Some people will light one candle a day. Others will say a seven-day candle. So by Yizkor, um, there is an idea to, to light a candle. That's based on a verse in Mishlei, in Proverbs. King Solomon uh, wrote in Mishlei, Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, that the, the, the soul of a man is like a candle, it's like a flame. 
And then I, the idea is that just like there's a flicker of the candle, it's, 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 it's a memory, so too we remember, memorialize uh, the soul. The, um, the, the Yizkor today for Ashkenaz Jews is done all the holidays. So it's done on Pesach, Passover, Shavuos, Sukkot, Sukkot, which, uh, and, uh, and Yom Kippur. Uh, and certainly uh, it's an important thing to do. I would encourage if anybody has relatives on Yizkor to, to do it and to, 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 to light a candle. Some people light one candle for all of them. And many people will even light individual candles. Um, lastly, on this topic of Yizkor, it's an interesting thing. Lord uh, Emmanuel Jacobowitz, a rabbi doctor, he, was, uh, he had lots of honorifics. <laughs> right? He was a chief rabbi in England uh, in the 1980s, I think in the 1970s. Uh, so Rabbi uh, Lord Jacobowitz, uh, so he notes that Yizkor is futuristic. It's in what in Hebrew called Atid. It's futuristic. Just like God remembers Noah, God remembers Abraham, and God remembers uh, uh, Rachel, all of those times, something happened afterwards. So he, he points out, when we go to Yizkor, when we remember our loved ones, our relatives, people that passed away, it should impact us. It should inspire us for the future. That's the idea of Yizkor. I just want to end up Yizkor with an amazing story. <laughs> and this story happened just a little less than 40 years ago. Uh, about 40 years ago, has anyone ever been to Israel during the holidays? Any of the holidays? Right, so you know that many people go to Israel for the holidays. So there was a Mr. Goldstein, I think it was like 1980 that this story happened. Uh, there was a Mr. Goldstein flying from London to Israel to spend Yom Kippur and some of the other holidays in Israel. And he gets on the plane in a, in a, in a flight from London to, uh, to Ben-Gurion Airport. What's, who's the majority of the flights? Jews. So he gets down on the plane. He sees a gentleman next to him. He, he sp- starts a conversation. He says, where are you going? I'm going to Israel. This. So he says, where are you from? From London. I'm also from London, you know, not from Manchester. He says, well, why don't you come over one of these days? You know, Mr. Goldstein happened to be religious. The other person happened to not look particularly. Why don't you come over for a, sat- for a Saturday for Shabbos for a meal? The guy, when he heard that, picks up his sleeves, shows him his numbers, and said, I don't do Sabbath anymore. He says, you see these numbers? I went to the camp with my beloved son, and the whole time in the camp, I prayed to God, just save my son. Just save my son. That's all I'm asking for. Give me my son. Don't, don't take him from me. And he said, I never saw my son again. So I don't do Shabbos. I don't do Yom Kippur. I don't keep kosher. I don't put on tefillin. I did that before the war. Nothing. So this Mr. Goldstein said to him, the person, this person, the survivor's name was Morris Schechter. He said, Mr. Schachter, I can't, I don't want to say it. Maybe just give me your number, we'll exchange numbers, and maybe one day you'll come. And Mr. Morris Schachter said, oh, maybe. And he wanted to get it to him after the flight, but in the old days, ever been going, and we go to Israel, used to kiss the ground, you come, you come there, they take you to the tarmac, yeah. and now that they came, it's, now it's boring, they pull you right up to the yeah. gate, and, yet, and you don't have that. But in the old days, you, get, you got there, and everyone's walking around. This is also before all the security you know, not, you know, people's rent, and he lost track of this, 
uh, more shechted. He didn't think about him. He tra- checked into the King David Hotel, and Yom Kippur came, and he went to one of the synagogues uh, in Jerusalem. And on Yom Kippur, as mentioned, we do Yizkor. This Mr. Goldstein walked out on Yizkor. He was fortunate that his parents were still alive. He had no one to say Yizkor for. So he walked out, and he went for, a, you know, for a, it's, Yizkor for 10, 15 minutes. He wanted to get a, a, some fresh air outside. And he goes down about a block, and he can't believe it. He sees this guy, Mor Shechter, who was sitting next to him on the plane. And he was eating a sandwich on Yom Kippur. So he says to Morris, you know, today is Yom Kippur. At least you don't eat on Yom Kippur. Morris, come on. He said, didn't I tell you? I don't keep Yom Kippur. I don't do anything anymore. He said, listen, it's Yizkor now. It's Yizkor now. Go in and say Yizkor. I'm not going to say Yizkor, he says. So he, and an act of desperation is, say it for your son. Do Yizkor for your son. So at that moment, something snapped in this Morshechter, and he said, well, I can't go because I'm not really dressed for the moment. He said, nobody's going to care. And after a few more minutes of back and forth, this Morshechter agreed to go in on Yizkor and to say Yizkor for his son. And at this synagogue, they do what students do. They go up and they tell the Chaz in their name. So you have to walk to the center of the synagogue. He comes in looking like he didn't belong there. But he, he goes with this Mr. Goldstein to say Yizkor for his son. And the Chazan says to him, what's your son's name? And he said, Yaakov. And he says, well, what's your name? Morris. He says, no, no, what's your Hebrew name? So he says, Moshe. So he said, well, what's your last name? So he says to him, what do you need my last name? Yizkor, you don't do last names. What do you need my last name for? It's Yaakov ben Moshe. So what's your last name? So he said, Shechter. And the Chazan looks at him. And this is a true story. And he says to him, Dad? Oh, no. Abba? I'm Yaakov ben Moshe. Are you Moshe ben Yaakov? And, I, you know, I don't know what happened after with this Moshe Shechter. But when you come to say Yizkor, you gain. You connect to who you are. Connect to your family. You connect to your relatives. That is, to, 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 to forget, to, ha- to give, even this Mora Shechter, who one can never judge his life, to forget his son. But to say Yizkor, you actually connect to your son. In this story, and many on the deepest level. Um, next thing is yard sites. So Svarim, actually I have every year, every week almost, a Sephardi Jew will come in, Azkara, they call it Azkara, or Hashkava. We call it yard site. What's yard site mean? What? Yar? What? Remembrance. It's close. It, it is an act of remembrance, but yar is? Year. year. And site? Time. The time. It's that time of year. So yard site literally means a time of year. It's not just a time where, we did, where the person passes away. Uh, where we remember them. We, pass, we, we, we mark the yard site on the day of their Hebrew death. So not in the Gregorian calendar, but on the Jewish day. And interestingly, if they had passed away at night, the Jewish calendar starts at night, like the Sabbath or Yom Kippur starts the night before, right? So it's, if they passed away at night, we don't go from 12 to 12. We go from sunset to sunset. So we, we mark the yard site, which anyone wants, there's plenty of calendars to figure this out. You just put, pump it in the English date. We do it that time of year to remember them. But it's not just 
that we remember on the day of their death, but Kabbalistically, which is a big idea in Kabbalah, the day a person passes away is the day every year that they're judged. Why would they be judged? So we're all children in this room, right? So we're products of our parents. Every year when they're passed away, they're judged on how they did with, with us. Why? Because we, what we're doing is their fruit of their tree. Right? We, so they're judged on us. They're, they're, we're judged on their grandchildren, on their great-grandchildren. There's a connection on the day of death to be, do it. So we try on that day to do things in their memory, to do things as a merit, and to remember uh, our ancestors, our loved ones, our relatives, even a good friend, a teacher, uh, somebody who impacted us positively. Um, what if you're not sure of the day of death? Uh, unfortunately, um, many of us, particularly with the Holocaust, you don't necessarily know when they passed away. So what many people do for the Holocaust is they will, if they know the day that their relative was taken to a concentration camp or a death camp, if they, they would mark that day. Uh, or the last time they would have seen the person, uh, it would pick a day. You could actually even uh, pick a day uh, uh, under, under that circumstance. If you're not certain, by the way, and you have two dates, and one's earlier, the general custom is to pick the earlier date. Okay? Also, on a yard site, the day of, uh, that, that day where a parent, a sibling, uh, grandparents, some people do, uh, a, a, a child, God forbid, um, the custom is, again, to light candles, and as mentioned, it's the same idea as that, uh, the verse in Proverbs. Um, and to say Kaddish. Kaddish, right? What does Kaddish mean to sanctify? Kaddish means that if we do things in this world, we sanctify our lives, we give merit to the seas. So people and mourners in general say Kaddish. On the day of the yard site, we would say Kaddish uh, for our, our loved ones. Um, to give charity. There is an old custom that some people, uh, it's not as popular today, but the old custom on your site was actually to fast in memory of a loved one. If you look at the classical works 300, 400 years in Lithuania and in Poland and in Germany, it would actually bring down the idea of fasting for uh, the loved one. What is common uh, today is um, that people uh, give something called tikkun. They will come to synagogue and they, give, they bring a lachayim, some scotch, some kichel, or they, want to, they upgrade, they go to pars, they get some ragalach. If you have to pick ragalach or kichel, it's a generational thing. I go for the ragalach, personally. <laughs> get skipped the herring, we'll get whitefish, you know, or lox. It's like, you know, different... Uh, actually, I have to like herring. But most, it's not so popular, uh, you know, these days. So, but to bring something that people can bless, they can enjoy uh, in, in memory of uh, the loved one. If you're lucky enough to have a loved one buried next to you, this is a general thing. The custom is to go to the cemetery on the day of the yard site. It's actually, Kabbalistically, the soul um, is connected to, to uh, that point, uh, to there at that time, uh, on the day of, of the day of, of the day of death. Um, another idea how we can prevent people from having a second death, to memorialize for ourselves and to give a spiritual benefit is to give the name to a child, to the baby. Um, you know, in my family, all of my siblings um, have two names. <laughs> uh, I'm named after my two great-grandfathers, uh, you know, who were both murdered in the Holocaust. Menachem Mendel was one great-grandfather, and Chaim was another great-grandfather. Uh, 
And all of my siblings have, actually my sister has three names, Gedotova Bela, uh, simply because we had so many relatives to name after. It, we had so many people who died in the Holocaust. And my parents, you know, I'm one of five children. My parents never knew how many kids they're going to have. They're trying to literally, and they have siblings, you know, to give as many names uh, as possible. You know, there is a remarkable, this is both in the Talmud and in the works of Kabbalah, that the name that we're given impacts us. That our, our Hebrew name, our Jewish name, actually impacts who we are. Um, and uh, Ashkenazic Jews in particular have a custom for thousands, literally, uh, you know, many hundreds of years to honor uh, the deceased by, by naming after them, by giving the Jewish name, the Hebrew name, that, uh, um, uh, after, not to, live, to name after the living. Sephardic Jews, actually, in certain circles, could give a name after the, a living person. Ashkenazi Jews, absolute no-no. But it is a strong idea to give uh, a, name, a, a name of a person. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, 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 ideas, of course, is, and this is an amazing thing, is that when you give the name, this is, this is uh, an amazing thing, you give somebody the name, there is a spiritual bond between the person who you're named after and, the, the, uh, and you. There is a spiritual connection to it. So actually, people who don't have uh, anyone to name after, in certain circles, call after great sages or great people, but there's actually a connection. The Noyim Ali Melech, who was one of the leading Hasidic uh, individuals, the, well, the leading in his time, in the early 18th century in Poland, writes about this in particular, based on Kabbalistic sources, how you are bonded to your name. But even if you don't, on, on a rational level, I walk around named after my two great-grandparents. I, you know, my, well, first of all, my grandmother, <laughs> who, who, who passed away at 102, who was a remarkable lady and a survivor. I, I, I spoke about her a few times ago. She would always tell me, you're named after my father. So she reminded me who I was named after as, as a little kid. She was, she was fond of telling me who, who I was named after. Um, but, but you think about who you're named after. It, it, it impacts you. You know, when you have a name of somebody, uh, you're, you're not only are spiritually connected to that person, but it impacts you. And it keeps the name alive. My son, Shlomo Eliezer, um, is uh, named after my, my father-in-law passed away, unfortunately, um, at too young of an age, you know, uh, but he's after my father. My father, that name, Shlomo Eliezer, has been in the family for hundreds of years. And I'm pretty sure, sh- I'm almost positive. My wife, I, I have, in, I guess, a genealogy, is a direct descendant of Rashi. Shlomo was Rashi's name. I'm pretty sure he's actually named from Rashi, going back a thousand years. So the name itself impacts you, right? It impacts who you are. So if you're thinking of how to prevent a second death, how to keep loved ones alive, is to name people after them, to give the name. My daughter Shifra, uh, who was born on Rosh Hashanah, so she's, uh, you know, it's a remarkable, she was born in 2012. My great-great-grandmother, who was born in 1880, um, and was murdered in the Holocaust in 1942. So, you know, when she was born, uh, Shifra, I, I named her also for Shofar, or Rosh Hashanah, or Shifar Maisim, to have good deeds. But Shifra, and there's no other Shifras in my family, Shifra's name is my great-great-grandmother, uh, who passed away 70 years earlier. And when she was named on, uh, right after Rosh Hashanah, 
in 2012, that name Shifra, which had been lost to my family, came alive again. Right? This Shifra Noodle, who was from Southeast, oh, last name was Noodle. My cousin says that's sort of like noodles in his family. In Poland, you gotta remember the last name Noodle. I don't know in America. But my, on, my, on my mother's mother's side, it was Noodle. Um, so that name Shifra, though, my daughter has a and she always says, I'm named after Shifra Noodle. Like, you know, it impacts her. And one day I'll tell her stories about her great, great, great grandmother, but it also kept the name um, uh, uh, alive. And there is an, an interesting uh, question. Um, it, it's, it's brought down hundreds of years ago. There was a custom, this is a particular, uh, it's by the Holocaust, uh, that naming people who died young because they were murdered. People who had bad, a bad reality. So there's the, actually a Polish sage, the Yamshel Shlomo, uh, by Shlomo Luria, the 16th century, writes down that it's a custom not to give names of people who were murdered young, people who, who died tragically. So what about now? What about the, 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 the Holocaust? So two things about that. If a person dies naturally when they're young, so Ray Feinstein set brings, or Moshe Feinstein, who was one of the great sages the past hundred years, so he brings two proofs that it's okay, because King Shlomo died in his 50s, and King Sam and the prophet Samuel. Anyone? Any Samuels? Any Sams in the room? Any Solomons in the room? No one. Any a relative Solomon or Samuel? Uh, I have a Shlomo, right? So the custom was to give those names, even though they died before sixty, which is considered young. Um, but that's if they have a natural death. Uh, Rabbi Kamenetsky says it's the age of sixty. Uh, but what my parents do, and many other people do, if you want to follow this custom is you gave two names, or you, know, or you switch it. He actually says the name Ishayahu became Ishaya for that reason. That's the, 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 the Moshe Feinstein brings down. So is to have a little bit of a switch. But it is a little bit of a question about naming someone murdered. Um, if they're older, it, it's, it's not such a serious thing. The last thing I want to just touch and talk about, and then maybe I'll answer any questions, um, is uh, genealogy and DNA. I, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a history person, and I'll tell you the truth. Uh, several years ago, I was learning Parshas Bamidbar, uh, the first book of the uh, Book of Numbers, right in the beginning of the Book of Numbers. And right over there, it talks when you counted the Jewish people, it says, They were all counted according to their families. When they were counted in the desert, the 40 years sojourn in the desert, they were counted according to... And I said to myself, I wonder, my son, my grandparents, they never talked about it. My, my, I mentioned one grandmother, she told me every story. I was having nightmares at six years old and seven years old. Like, somehow, I, like, in my dreams, I was in like, you know, Treblinka. Uh, but my, her husband, my grandfather, he never, ever, ever talked about the Holocaust. He never, ever talked about his past. Um, you know, because again, he had seen his wife and two kids shot. Never, I, I knew nothing about his family. Not even, not even, my, my, my mother knew nothing. He never talked about, all, he, all she knew was, was a couple of names. So I said, I would like to figure out where he's from, like, you know, what the story is. Uh, my other grand, my grandmother's talked, and my grandfather didn't say a word. Uh, my other grandfather also never spoke about his past. So I decided to research uh, that, that, this uh, idea, because Zachar is also Zahor, the lineage, know where you come from, right? Judaism, maternal, we follow the mother, like, 
But the idea of tribes is to, to have a knowledge of where you come from. It's actually, when I start to do genealogy, you just see the impact because if you look at my family tree, um, it, goes, it goes like this, and then all of a sudden you see Majdanek, Treblinka, a lot, a lot in Belzec, a lot in Belzec, uh, or just the Holocaust, and, like, and it ends. And then you see going down, uh, it's like, it's, it's, when you look at a tree that way, it's like, it really, you see the individual. But first of all, I want everyone who was killed to be remembered. I want that once you put it today, you know, genealogy today, it's all on the cloud. It's online, right? You have it for posterity. So those names that of my relatives, of my great uncles and great aunts, and aunt and uncle, because my grandfather was married before the war, um, who were murdered, who no one could remember, they, those names are there. Like my, they weren't, there's no second death, right? My, my family will know that they, these were, were, were their relatives. But it also allowed me to find out remarkable things. So that grandfather, who I knew nothing about, I now can go back in his situation a couple hundred years. I know where he lived. I know about him. Uh, things I never knew about before. I know I could actually see the names earlier. I had no idea I was named for these people coming out earlier in the family tree. Um, and, it, and knowing that really impacts you. My wife, by the way, who has uh, an amazing lineage. Uh, she's a descendant of Rashi, uh, Tosfus, some of the German French ages, the Cloinimus family who Charlemagne brought from Italy and started Ashkenazic Jewry. She's a direct descendant of the Cloinimus family, the Maharami Prague, the Ramah from Krakow, uh, the Marsha, for those who follow Chabad, she's a direct descendant of the Tanya. Like, but the remarkable thing, her last name is Zakheim, her, her, her maiden name. And Zakheim stands for Zera Kodesh Haim. That from Holy Seed, her ancestor, her father's 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 father, in the 17th, mid-17th century, actually died uh, on a blood libel on Rosh Hashanah. And she walks around the name Zakheim as a kid. And she said, you know, more the people she never, the relatives she didn't have their name, she thought about less, even though they're more prestigious. But this Zakheim, it impacted her to know where she came from. I remember I said in the beginning, if you wake up tomorrow, you don't know who you are. You don't know who your parents were. You don't know who your grandparents are. You don't understand who you are. When you have genealogy, you can see your family. It bothers me when someone says to me, where are you from? From Russia. Okay, Russia's a big country. Where? Poland. Right? Like, you connect to who you are when you have genealogy. So I was able to find my grandfather. My other grandfather, this is a remarkable thing. All I knew about my other grandfather, my, my name in, in Europe was Lewick. It wasn't Levine. Levine was... When they came to America, Lewick means in Polish, Le- Levite. So my other grandfather, all I knew was from Brok, uh, and which was a few kilometers from Treblinka. And he never spoke of anything. And when I started looking into genealogy, I, I, I came across actually one of the foremost Jewish genealogists in the world. It's a guy named Stanley Diamond. He, he's one of, the, one of the people of Jewish gen. Everyone heard of Jewish gen? So he was one of the people who did that. He came from a little town next to Brook, and he sent me an article at the first town, the first town that was reported in the Western press about Nazi atrocities was the shtetl was of my grandfather Brook, and it describes this article in early 1939 in the war, how Brook, when the Nazis, a thousand people, they took people to the synagogue, they burnt them alive. This is before the final solution, burnt them alive. 
how they, they, they rounded up people. And I, you know what? When I, I never knew that about my grandfather. He never said that. I, I can never understand why my grandfather never talked. And then when I read about what happened in Brock, that he experienced, I couldn't, that was the first day of the Nazis. I, I couldn't even imagine that. Like when I look back now, I understand my grandfather better. better. Um, and it really impacted me, even like the Levites. I took a DNA test, because if you're going to do genealogy, the way actually I cracked one of my grandfather's ancestry was I took a DNA test, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I got my parents to take the DNA test, because I could mother's side, father's side. And because of that, my mother had a relatively close match. She had a second cousin match who had a family tree. And I was able to, through the DNA, get to my, to my mother's father's, this grandfather, so I can now go, he's a Rosenbach and a Katzbach. I, goes way, I can go way, way back uh, with that. But the other thing is DNA. I took a Levite test, which is the Y chromosome. So the Y chromosome, you can actually, that's your only get that from his father's 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 father. And there's something called a Cohen gene and a Levite gene. It's a remarkable thing. If Kohanim and if the priestly class and the Levites are related, they should share this Y chromosome. And so they took lots of Levites in Kohanim, they said, is the, could they find a common gene? Right? They, you, it, it can't prove that you're a Kohen or Levite, but it could show if you're related to other people claiming to be a Kohen or Levite. You got how that would work? And you only get it from fathers. So I took this Levite test. You know, I grew up being a Levite. Within an hour, I got an email from Israel by the, the king of the Levite gene, this guy, Mayor Gover. You have the Levite gene. Like within an hour of the test being published, which is, when you think about that, like, my family tradition, um, like, by the way, it's, it's, it's so statistically off-whack, but basically anyone who, over 50% of people claiming to be a Levite have this same gene on the Y chromosome as a very small percent of otherwise Ashkenazic Jewry. So what's clear is that I'm related to all these other Levites. We all go back to a common ancestor in the third century of the common era. That's how far they can track it. So that's, when you see that, when you know that, and you're not, you're, it, it impacts you of where you come from, and your children or grandchildren, to impact them. Um, I will tell you also that having been involved in genealogy, you're able to help lots of people. Once my tree got a little bit big, I have literally, I've, I'm on, now I don't spend that much time on this, but I happen to be on ancestry, genealogy, family tree DNA, my heritage, because you really want to do it, you want to get 23 me. I'm like, gen match, I'm like, I'm on all of them. Uh, so I get emails. My grandparents died in the Holocaust. My parents, I know nothing about my past. I see you have a big tree. You know, you're able to actually help people connect who they are, to know who they are. It's really, it's a chesed, and help, people have helped me along the way plenty as well. You really are able to help people to connect in a very profound way. But I will tell you most importantly, you help your own family, children, grandchildren, relatives, to know where you come from, uh, where they are. So if you do DNA uh, and gene- genealogy, um, I would say for the Jews, because if you go to ancestry, it's a great thing, but it doesn't have such a great Jewish uh, uh, database. You know, if, if you want to do Jewish database, I would recommend My Heritage, which comes from Israel, which is one of the biggest uh, genealogy and DNA, My Heritage, uh, or Family Tree DNA. Those are the two best. If you do one of those, you can then put it for free onto GenMatch. And GenMatch takes 23andMe, Ancestry, and anyone can put it onto uh, GenMatch. So for, for genealogy, also something called Jenny, G-E-N-I. 
Uh, you can do that at least for free. There's lots of people. By the way, in Jenny, there's groups of like, I'm on, I'm not going to try to say this, Shezberezin, like that's my, my grandfather is from there, or Jara, or Thomas Lebelski. There are groups of genealogy groups and DNA groups that are there. If you're researching Poland or Lithuania, the Jewish gen, Jewish gen has the Polish records going back till 1650 in certain circumstances. So if you have last names, you have the towns, you can go really far back. You can't, you can't imagine how far, far back you could, if you have a little bit of information, you could uncover lots of things. And they actually have marriage records on their Jewish gen. It's a remarkable thing called Jewish gen. Um, and also the Jewish Research Institute. They're both online services. You can really get far back. And again, it's a gift to your children, to your relatives, to, to, to bring these people's uh, name and to keep it alive. Um, just to finish about memorializing uh, those, our loved ones, our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, relatives who perished, who were murdered uh, in the Holocaust. Um, you know, I, I would say the last thing is the stories that we tell in our own homes uh, that, you know, the choices of things that we talk about uh, you know, it's in real life today in the social media age. When you, look, when you think about a vacation, what matters at the vacation? At the end of the day, as far as everyone else but yourself, it's the pictures you take, what you post. Right? That's all people see. <laughs> it's what you post today. It's what's there. The stories that we tell about our loved ones is what we post. We know what the people, but what we give over to our children and grandchildren, our cousins, our relatives, our nie- nieces, our nephews, or even the strangers. There was a person in my synagogue, for those of few people that were here, and there was Avram Keisler. Remember Mr. Keisler? He was a Holocaust survivor, Ungarashid, a Hungarian Jew. And to this day, he's passed away over seven years ago. Um, he impacted people. Right? He impacted uh, people from his life and the stories that he told and the life that he lived. There's another person I never met before my time named Zelig Byrne. Right? whose Sefer Torah we use in our synagogue. This Zelig Byrne, um, you know, didn't have children or grandchildren. Um, his, his, his relatives that go to, to, to Beth David, what's her, what's her name? This is a niece also. And we also has, what's her name? There's another one from Beth David, also a cousin. Um, but, you know, she told me she was relative. Um, I'll hit me afterwards. But, but he didn't have any children. But that Sefer Torah... His, his name, the memories that people have, the way they talk about him, that's the legacy of Zelligberg. That's the legacy of Avram, uh, of Avram Kaiser. You know, Devorah Lipstadt, um, who many people heard de- de- from Emory University, who fought against Holocaust denial, she has a... a, a still is. And still is. Uh, has a famous piece on Yizkor. And in that piece, she writes the following thing. When we remember, irrespective of whom we're remembering... A parent, a grandparent, a sibling, an aunt, or an uncle, teacher or mentor, these memories become part of us. As we internalize these memories, they change us, and we evolve, we grow. So too, those who will follow us and remember us may be changed by their memories of us. So in conclusion, I would say, if we take some of these ideas uh, of the Yizkor, Yard site, baby naming, uh, genealogy or DNA to, to further our trees, uh, and to write it down and to speak about those 
of our loved ones who, if they pass away today, or those who were murdered in the Holocaust, we not only impact ourselves, but we pick, impact those around us. That not only prevents the second death, but it's the greatest way, you know, um, you had mention about having, you know, children, but the greatest way to, to keep our, our past alive is to bring it to the present and the future. So I hope some of these ideas I spoke about today are meaningful. I know for myself, to be honest, uh, in preparing for this lecture, I thought about my relatives. I thought about my own loved ones. And, and you know, we should all have be, bring nachas. We should bring only good things to those who came before us. Only those good, good, good things uh, to those who brought us to this world. And we should keep the memories of those, especially those people whose lives were stamped out at young ages, only too early, by Hitler Yamach Shemo, that we should bring those names and those memories to the days of Messiah, to the days of Mashiach. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> we don't have to ask any questions, but if there's any questions that people have, yes, Doris. Uh, of course, Miss. <laughs> um, a comment and a question. Um, the comment is the website that you referred to named Genie is primarily a Jewish website, and it was founded by um, a friend of mine. Um, he's a, between a second and a third generation. He is also the, the person who found the Klimt painting and oh. saved it. And if you remember, there's a movie made by Randy Schoenberg. Uh, he lives in Los Angeles. He actually can be found in person. So if you're trying to use the Jenny web, website, uh, he'll help you. He's really, really invested. He made a lot of money on that law case. He's a lawyer, international. And he's doing a lot more now with genealogy and connecting people. And I'm not clear, maybe you know a little bit more, why he has such a big access to a Jewish database. So there are, there are a couple of organizations that made a deal with Poland and with parts of the Baltic states to have their records. So, And some of them are... The, it's more, actually more challenging. In the past 100 years, or, or some places 80 years, there are laws about releasing that information. But information from a couple hundred years ago, uh, they actually have access to. And they, 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 you, can, you can tap into that uh, kind of uh, you know, reality. Yes? And the con- oh, the con- I'm sorry. One, one question. Um, the um, Mexican celebration, Day of the Dead, um, I want to know his connection to Jewish roots because they do the same thing. They honor the past. If you saw the cartoon movie Coco. recently called Coco, yes. it's a beautiful, beautiful movie about lost souls. And they're lost because no one's remembering them. And so the cartoon is about going into the other world right. and finding the lost souls and bringing them back. And, and remembering them and celebrating their lives, and they do this the day after Halloween. They have feasts. They go to the grave. They have picnics. They feed the souls. They feed themselves. Uh, very beautiful. Yeah, so it's certainly, it's certainly possible. There's, a, there's a, either a direct connection or a connection, or it's possible it's not. But obviously, Mexico. This is a fact. Uh, you can, and again, I'll, I'll tell you my Jewish history. So it's in the New World, in, in certain parts of Mexico were dominated at one point by Murano Jews. That's a fact. So the fa- it's certainly possible that these Jewish customs, um, the Inquisition eventually came full force to Mexico. Uh, that one of the biggest governors, uh, I'm blanking right now on the name, uh, Cerebellio, I think was the name, was, was a Murano Jew who brought all kinds of Jews to north. 
especially northeast Mexico, was dominated by Murano Jews at one point uh, of, the, of the European settlers that were Murano Jews who were escaping uh, Spain. So it's certainly possible there's a connection to it. I, I don't know. I can't say that. I, I, I know 100%, but I, would, I, I think it's fair to say that if there's a s- serious possibility, if it came from Europe, that it came from the Jews. If it's an old Native American thing, then obviously there's no connection. I don't, I don't know about that. I don't yeah. know either, but yeah. if, if we want to have an interfaith connection like we're trying in this community, it's kind of a nice way that you can say, hey, we share a similar tradition that's almost like yours. Right. And oh, that's for that's sure. Or, or it's our tradition, which they took, <laughs> which we do share. I don't know. I'm not sure. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the, honest, the honest answer. Yes? Um, I had a question, but after this Day of the Dead thing, um, I wanted to say that I was talking to my, one of my mother's Filipino caregivers, and she was telling me, oh, we have Halloween too, and she was telling me about it. I said, wait a minute. That's kind of like the Mexican Day of the Dead. And she said, yeah, it's, it's, so they're doing that in the Philippines too. Right. I mean, these are ca- both both Mexico and the Philippines are Catholic countries. Right. right, right. So it's not right. They're very Catholic countries, both of them. Know. You know. So <laughs> there's probably I, I would pro- I would I'd say there's an overlap of that same type of thing. Yes. So the question. So the um, genie thing that doesn't do any testing, right? That well, you database well you them? could te- no. So if you really want to do genealogy, you would do both. You would do, take DNA testing. Um, and you would do genealogy. So Genie actually has a deal with Family Tree DNA. So if you take the Family Tree DNA, uh, if you take the, the DNA test on that, you can put it onto Genie, and you can uh, do both. I happen to like MyHeritage also, because it, it's number one in Europe, genealogy. They have DNA testing. It's number three DNA testing in the world. It's also from Israel. The remarkable and un- unfortunate thing, for whatever reason still, is that Israel has a law. Israel and Russia have laws on the books of no DNA testing. So um, you will find Jews from Israel and Russia on the DNA test, but not proportional. Why not? Because they have laws. How do they get on a DNA test? They ask someone in America to bring them the test to Israel or to Russia, take the test, send it back, and then it gets uploaded uh, onto those countries. Both of those countries have it. But yeah, Genie is great. I mean, and, and Genie actually was bought out. I know Randy Schoenberg from L.A., Started, but it was bought out by my heritage. So my heritage actually owns Genie today. Something like Ancestry, by the way, has tremendous resources, and I'm on there. Um, but it's mostly, you know, we're uh, 14 million Jews in the world. There's almost six billion people. Whatever, approximately six billion people. So it's mostly um, non-Jewish. Uh, so because you know the chances of, of getting DNA hits are if you want to just use it for pure genealogy. It's, any genealogy could work. But if you want to add DNA, you would want people who are taking it from your background. That's how DNA works, right? If you take a DNA test, you want people from your circle. If you're taking a DNA test in China and you're a Jewish person, guess what? <laughs> you have no relatives, I promise you. you will, it will not come up in the past 100 years unless there's someone like yourself there. So you want to take a DNA test where you actually will have uh, relatives because you're trying to figure out your connections. The, 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 the bingo of DNA is... If the person you have a DNA relationship to, it's unlikely going to get a first cousin, highly unlikely, it's a second or a third, that that person has a family tree going back, right? So if you got a DNA connection to that person, you can cross names and the name goes, and you can go really far back. That's the, 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 the plus of taking the DNA test um, as well. Any other questions? Yes? Just, uh, I think the um, chances of finding a hit in India are larger, right? 
have an Indian friend who said there were a lot of Jews in India, right? There was a Sephardic, there was and still is a small Sephardic, Sephardic community, community of mostly Iraqi Jews uh, who came uh, in the 18th and 19th century. There's also an older community uh, which, which, which was a slightly uh, of a discussion of their actual background of Cochin Jews uh, that claimed to come from way earlier to India. Um, there's, a, there's a small community of them as well. Those, that, that community, almost all, both those communities moved over to Israel. So it's, it's uh, you know, what's left in India today is, you know, Chabad. <laughs> For all the backpackers that are there, it's really a, a small community. I remember in Bombay, there was a, a shooting about a decade ago. It was the Chabad Shluchim, because that, the shul in India today is really that, that, that Chabad shul. So there'd be like a real small chance of a hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, if you're Ashkenazi, almost no chance because it's a Sephardic community. So remember, DNA testing, if you're not let's do like a Y chromosome, goes back about 500 years. So even though Ashkenazi and Sephardim, if you go far enough back, you'll be one of the same people, but you, the actual matches are not. You can see joint relatives going farther back, but you can't match it like that after a while because the divisions become too minute to pick up, right? It, you know, if you have an ancestor a thousand years ago, it will not pick up on a DNA test currently. What we have currently it could be able to change over time. We have currently want to. Any other questions? Yeah. Yes. What's your name? Remind me. Shana. Shana. Yes, Shana. I didn't hear a question. Did you, what is, what, what's, I know, what's, you had a question? Do you have a question? No? No, not a question. You asked if they're Russians. And I oh, you're Russian. Okay, Shana. I'm not Russian, I'm from Russia. From Russia. That's a big difference. <laughs> I got it. Where from in Russia? Which part? Well, originally I was born in Moscow, but after the World War II, we moved to Ukraine. To Ukraine. Lemberg. Lvov. Galicia. Neighbors. Neighbors, yeah, for sure. Wow, we have to find a story after. Yes. So then, okay, so my father's deceased, we never had him do a test. I have no brothers. I have a grandson, but that Y is going to come from his father, my son-in-law. So if I'm XX, what are my chances of finding much? So if you would find a cousin, this is a great question, if you would find a cousin who is from your father's side or your mother's side, are you, is your mother been tested? Is your mother alive? She's been tested for an ancestry. Oh, so then you're fine, because if, if it doesn't match your mother, you're almost definitely it's from your father. Are there parts of me that don't match my mother that are from my father? Yeah, so DNA from a child's 50% mother, 50% father. Well, that part I know, but the Y chromosome. Oh, the Y, oh, you mean for the Y, no. You can't, yeah, you would need to have a cousin have it on your father's side, a male cousin for the Y chromosome, yes, that's and true. I'm not going to have access to all his connections online because it's going to be him doing it. Unless you shared, or you can share, share it, or you can, you can take the test for him. You can give him the test and do it. I did that for my aunt. Also possible. Okay, any other questions I'll take afterwards. Thank you very much for this honor. I really appreciate it.